Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 105 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the card game episode of the SLS Cast, because... 105 happens to be the name of a simple card game where players lose if they have over 105 points. And not knowing how to play, this is Matt. And this is Tim. Matt, do you have a favorite card game you like to play since you brought it up? Uh, Currently, it is actually an online game uh, put out by Blizzard. It's called Hearthstone. And uh, you get all these crazy little creatures and goblins and fun little thingies and spells and whatever and um you know you go and you play against people and rng fucks you in the ass every time but other than that it's still good i still like it it's my favorite right now how about physical card game that would be magic the gathering it is a collectible trading card game where you play the role of a planeswalker dueling out with other planeswalkers with spells and creatures mana must use to be cast um that wasn't what you were looking for either were you thinking like gin rummy five card stud something yeah like yeah, that? yeah 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 a yeah. real card game <laughs> you know the funny thing is is as dorky as those games are millions of dollars are won every year by players on like pro tours for this shit i mean it's ridiculous i actually a long time ago i really did play this magic game that i was telling you about i haven't played in years but i really did like to play and i actually would like go to pro tour qualifiers and stuff and try and win you know try and go to to place for in the hundreds of thousands of dollars (laughs) so there, there are people out there. You, you think to yourself, well, that's just a fucking stupid game for geeks. Well, they're richer than you are, so there's that. They are. Um, no, yeah. And see, you know, I don't think that's really dumb, especially after I know uh, or we're friends with these people that were really into Street Fighter, and yet they were showing me videos, or they constantly watch videos of these tournaments in, like, I don't know, like, Scottsdale, Arizona, or wherever the fucking you know Midwest in Iowa, maybe I don't know, <laughs> where they have these big Street Fighter tournaments, and it's not real people fighting. Nay, it's actually them playing Street Fighter on a big screen, and yeah, yeah with their like three and four hundred dollar custom controllers that like people built and everything with the actual <laughs> toggle switches in there, and every- I mean, it's pretty, this people, I mean, holy crap! If, if you know about Twitch TV, twitch.tv, you can literally go watch these Street Fighter tournaments. They, like, get people who professionally go and cast them. Those are, like, sports casters, but for Street Fighter. I couldn't believe it. They're like, well, you know, clearly this, you know, whatever player's name here, uh, Joe person, we'll just call him Joe because I don't know who they are, you know, uh, he's been having trouble playing Zangief. Apparently he can't seem to get the combo points up against Chun-Li and, you know, and so he has to keep doing this, but I imagine if he executes the proper blocks and the timing succession that's possible against Chun-Li, then he will be able to execute the proper combo that's going to do a reversal and then give him the actual match. And I'm like, what the fuck did they just say? I thought, you know, Chun-Li kicked a lot and Zangief just spun somebody. I was like, what? So, yeah. It's crazy. See, I picture these guys like... Did you ever see the movie Monster House? Yes. 
Okay, so there was the pizza dude. I think he was the pizza dude. And it shows him in the video arcade playing a video game. And he is like, he, it's, he, it seems like he would be playing Street Fighter, but he would have a Cheeto hanging out of his mouth and just like <laughs> pressing one button repeatedly. Yet he is kicking ass just by moving his pointer finger up and down. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yes. Truly. But um, no, as far as traditional playing cards go, um, I have always been a big fan of spades and hearts. Hmm. I pegged you as a free card kind of guy. You mean free sell? Sure. That, or I didn't know that you could play that. You in can't. Real life. I, honestly, I don't play cards. Uh, oh. No, I'm kidding. I play Phase Ten, which I, I guess really doesn't. It's one of those fancy card games. It, it could very well be the Street Fighter of card games, uh, because I guess a real card game would be Hearts, Black, you know, stuff like that. Poker, even. But yeah, Phase Ten's like, ooh, you know, just well, I guess all card games are pretty much a game of chance and luck. You know, some strategy, but mainly luck. All right, then. Maybe. I don't know. Chung Lee. Okay. <laughs> uh, so what have you been up to this last week since oh, we've Oh, man. This past week has been magical. Um, on Saturday, I went to the what they uh, the, uh, the band who I went to go see perform kept calling the Fabulous Forum Theater. Or it's actually used to be where the Lakers used to play back in the day. But I went and saw Fleetwood Mac. The complete Fleetwood Mac with Christy McVie, John McVie, uh, Lindsey Buckingham, Mick Fleetwood, and everyone's favorite 65-year-old frog-voiced beautiful singer and poet, Stevie Nicks. And I gotta say, man, that was a fan... I mean, I hate that venue. Hate it, hate it, hate it. I hate the forum, but that concert was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I can't... I mean, there's only very... There are very few bands that are still touring and performing to this day that have all of their original members in that band. And I'm talking about bands from the 60s, from the 70s. I'm, I mean, every single one of their band or band members mm. are still together, or are now still together. To, to be fair, though, I mean, you know, the 60s were literally 54 years ago. So, you know, you if if you were if you're lucky, you're pushing 70. Walking in. The <laughs> okay, door. well, the 70s. So, we'll say the 70s <clears throat> even, because right off the top of my head, from the 70s, I can think of Fleetwood Mac and Rush. Yeah, but most everybody else has has that that was really cool has a member at least one member that's dead. I know, but that's what I'm saying is that that this is this is great. I mean, that's what I'm saying is okay, that it sounds like well, I mean, I don't know. It is good. Don't get me wrong. It is good. Uh, I do actually have one question about the concert that I forgot to ask you on Facebook when you went um, the next day, but um, it just kind of it sounded to me as if you know. Like, like the other bands don't have a choice. Like they have a choice and just choose not to. Whereas Fleetwood Mac more or less gets it by default, along with Rush, they they more or less get it by default. Get what by default? The ability to tour as a complete band because they're healthy. Just because they're alive. <laughs> the Rolling Stones aren't healthy. 
but they're alive. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, but anyways, well, other than that, I uh, I was transported to Neverland during the Peter Pan Live uh, television broadcast with Christopher Walken, Mister Missed Cues and Forgotten Lines, Christopher Walken. Um, that was fun. But most importantly, and this kind of leads into a little news of the... Well, it's not necessarily news of the weird, but maybe news of being pissed off or annoyed, maybe. News of the annoyed, we'll say that. But, Matt, have you heard about... Uh, this was something that was really hyped up. It was the Discovery Channel special. Uh, I think it was entitled, like, Eaten Alive, and it's where a guy was dressed up in the special suit to where an anaconda was going to eat him alive. And it was a big thing. Did you hear about that at all? No. No, I did hear about the one where the guy got dressed up in a special suit, but it was a walrus one. I think they made a movie about that. Uh, that sounds... Well, I, I hope it worked out, and I hope he actually, you know, uh, was actually eaten. Because when you are hyping a show entitled Eaten Alive... And this thing is pre-recorded. I mean, it wasn't live. It wasn't eaten alive live. And it pertains to a man dressed up in a suit being eaten by an anaconda. So you would think that this guy knows his shit. In fact, I'm looking at a picture of him right now holding in his hands an anaconda. His hands are around the anaconda's neck or throat or whatever, holding it in place. So this guy knows something about the power in the curiosity of of anacondas but yet what he did not take into consideration what did not come into mind while preparing for this stunt was that maybe maybe the anaconda will crush the guy as the anaconda is devouring him like a snake normally does when a snake eats something it crushes it it right. suffocates it's, it. It has to hold its... It's constriction. That? Yeah, it's constriction. It, it, exactly. It's, it's, that's exactly. What it's supposed and to so do. if you're dressed up in a suit, covered in blood or whatever he was covered in, and he was going to be, you know, devoured by this anaconda, uh, if, you're, if you look like an animal, the anaconda is going to act on instinct. So, what I'm getting at is that the guy was not eaten... In a program called Eaten Alive. He was not eaten. The snake kind of was on his head, you know, like, you know, engulfing his head. But the snake was crushing him. And the guy starts bitching that his arm is, like, twerking. Or why I don't know what the hell he was saying. I forgot. Twerking, I think. And that he was about to break his arm or break a body part. So people had to come get the snake off him and, you know, and, and go. In fact, there is a video online to save yourself from watching Nay, wasting two hours. This was a two-hour special called In Alive. This is worse than that goddamn mermaid documentary from <laughs> that the Travel Channel or I the was Animal. Waiting for, I was waiting for the long-lost reference to Al Capone's vault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, I mean, you know, to about. save yourself two hours of sitting through all this nonsense just to be lied to. Uh, on on YouTube, there's a video of the last minute and a half of this shit going on. Mi one minute out of two-hour program, a minute and a half of Was him. Was it live? 
pus- was the show, pussing was out the show, pretty much. Was the show live or? No, no, not at all. Oh my god! So they recorded this and then tried to sell it anyway. Yeah, I, mean, least, I don't know how, least how long in advance they did it, thing. but yeah, at least the Al Capone's vault thing was live. So I mean, poor Geraldo didn't really have a chance, but he didn't know he didn't have a chance. Yeah, and like this is uh, from an article from io9, and just the first little paragraph here, it said this last night the Discovery Channel aired its controversial special eaten alive, in which a man tried and failed to get a green anaconda to eat him. And while we're glad that it didn't get that far, this special was just a bullshit excuse to use fear of these animals for the sake of ratings. No, I gotta say I'm kind of not glad that he didn't die because, I mean, if the if the experiment had been a true and full success, well, then you'd have kind of something really cool and stupid, but jackassy to talk about. True. And if it failed, then you have someone who is a candidate for a Darwin Award. And quite <laughs> frankly, I think that that's a true win-win situation. I agree. So, and yeah. real quick, it wasn't a two-hour special. It was a one-and-a-half-hour special. But still, that is stretching it. Yeah. Um, so did they only stick... By the way, I, I meant to ask you, because I almost forgot anyway. Uh, did Fleetwood Mac only stick to the Rumors album, or did they... Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, they played for about two-and-a-half hours... Oh, that's cool. Yeah, when I went and saw him for my birthday a couple years ago, Christy McVie was not there. And I think the show was about an hour and 45-ish minutes. But since mm-hmm. she was back with him, uh, that tacked on another 45 minutes to the show. And it was pretty special, man. It was really cool. I highly recommend them when they come into town. Outstanding, outstanding. Well, let's see. Nothing really fun and exciting happened to me. I finished school for the semester, so I'm very excited there. And um, let's see. Looking forward to hopefully we're we're in the works. We're finalizing the last couple of details. But it looks like we're going to land our crossover episode with We Are Not Here to Please You. So fingers crossed that that officially comes together. Um but I would say we're probably about 95% of the way there. Just barring a freak incident with scheduling would be the only thing that would prevent that. And I got my cool new monitor stuff set up in my, uh, in my computer world. So yeah, things are, things are good. And I think I'm ready to do the news. How about you, sir? That sounds good, Mr. High Tech. <laughs> Dual monitor. Uh, that's right. Dual monitors. Yay! All right, folks, here we go. It is the news! So, let's see. First up, from me. I, depending on how you want to look at this, this is either good news or bad news or, Matt, what the hell's the matter with you? Why do you even bother talking about it? You're probably going to fall into the latter of the three char- uh, categories, but, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting anyway. From DigitalSpy.com, courtesy of Hugh Armitage, Angelina Jolie confirms retirement. Quote, I've never loved acting. End quote. The Oscar winner said that she absolutely plans, quote-unquote, absolutely plans to focus on filmmaking in the future. 
Quote, I've never been comfortable as an actor. I've never loved being in front of the camera, end quote, Jolie told Dujour. Quote, I didn't think ever I could direct. Let me rephrase that. I apologize. That was a misquote there. Quote, I didn't ever think I could direct, but I hope I'm able to have a career at it because I'm much happier, end quote. There we go. I can read. She has previously said that her portrayal of Cleopatra could mark her final acting role. Uh, Jolie has been teasing her plans to retire from acting for years and was most recently seen in Disney's Maleficent. Her most recent directorial outing, Unbroken, will arrive in U.S. cinemas on Christmas Day and in the, U- and then in the U.K. on Boxing Day. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think, Tim? Are, are you at all surprised, pleased? Have you seen any of her work? Like she did the uh, movie about the Serbian women getting kidnapped and stuff i thought that was pretty good um that- oh yeah 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 no she i mean i don't know i think she's a smart woman and if she wants to uh focus on directing i say go for it i mean i think she has the power to make uh really good movies you know she has the leverage to make really good movies and she's i think she's a cool cool woman you know i think she's really neat uh just Based on interviews and stuff, I mean, I don't know Angelina Jolie. Wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and it seems like also, like, the movie she's been in, she's kind of typecast as the sexy, action-y type of, type of woman, you know. And I think it, it was kind of hard for her to get out of that stereotype in a way. Right so. on. Well, cool. Well, what do you have for us first, sir? All right. First up is from ScreenCrush.com, an article entitled "The Anim- the Amazon That's right. The Amazon customer reviews on this on this one hundred and twenty thousand dollar television are amazing. This is written by Matt Singer from last week, and that is right. This is a hundred and twenty thousand dollar television. It's a 105-inch curved 4K Ultra HD 3D Smart LED TV. <laughs> uh, it's 105 freaking inches. That's almost 9 feet. Which means this television is larger than Andre the Giant. At 353.8 pounds, it weighs nearly as much as Andre did too. It comes with built-in Wi-Fi, 3 HDMI ports, voice controls, and fittingly, one gigantic price tag, $119,999.99, and that is on Amazon. And it's temporarily temporarily out of stock, too, believe it or not. And, um, yeah, and so they talk, $100,000 on a TV. If Hey, if I could afford it, I totally would. Um, but here... What this article is, I mean, it's about the TV, but the the gems come from the customer reviews that the title mentions. And uh, these reviews are via Reddit. And what it says here, and a hat tip to my former co-worker Genevieve Koski. And here are a few of Screen Crush's favorites. Uh, the first review here from Memdina. The black levels and color depth on this TV are pretty good for the price. However, the small screen size is a deal breaker. I recommend buying an IMAX theater instead. From YS. 
I measured the TV and it was actually 104.6 inches, not 105. So I returned it. <laughs> From Eric J. Smith. I was able to purchase this amazing television with an FHA loan, 30-year fixed rate with 4.25% APR, and only 3.5% down. This is, hands down, the best decision I've ever made. And the box it came in, in an, or, um, and the box it came in is incredibly roomy too, which is a huge bonus because I live in it now. I'm just going to read two more. Picked up these little beauties this morning with only one issue. 50 bucks for the mini wall mount speakers that accompany it. Does it look like I'm made of money, Samsung? Uh, so far, all these ratings have been five stars. Uh, this person rated this TV three stars based on the wall mount. And lastly here from Tayhard, or yeah, it's Tayhard, um, five star review. I'm a little disappointed. Mine came bent, but that's okay. I just laid it in the I just laid it in the road, tied my Lambo to my yacht to my Hummer, and drove that sucker right over. Bam! No more bent screen. Didn't even have to take any stars away on the review because the build quality is so great that I was able to take the bends out and get it. Uh, take the bends out, and it still works flawlessly. If you haven't purchased this yet, I don't know who you are anymore. End all quotes. Again, that was a tongue-in-cheek, those were tongue-in-cheek comments uh, about this really good uh, TV, apparently. It's kind of amazing. What do you think, Matt? If you had the money, would you buy this TV, or would you consider taking out a loan and refinancing your house to purchase it? I have to say that if I had that kind of money... Um... I would like to think that I would be smart enough to know not to spend that kind of money on a TV. But if I were like Bill Gates kind of money, then sure, why not? That's literally like a drop in the bucket. That's You know, that's the sad like, thing is is that if I had this money, I would probably buy it. <laughs> I would. <laughs> yes. I like the idea of having something that is as big as Andre the Giant in my living room. Other than my penis. Well, maybe they could just, Samsung should just rename it the Barney Stinson model because, it, you know, he had those big walls, just a complete wall that was the TV. So. Was that a uh, How I Met Your Mother reference? It was. I never saw the show. Ah. Well, those who did, those who wasted all those precious years on it, <laughs> like I did. Well, uh, they'll get that reference anyway. <clears throat> all right. So, next up from me. We have uh, from the in, uh, from independent.co.uk, courtesy of Jess Denham. The Hobbit, no more Tolkien films after the Battle of Five Armies, says Peter Jackson. The director is unlikely to return to Middle-earth due to legal reasons. Yes, folks, Gandalf. We mean Ian McKellen raised Tolkien fans' hopes recently when he said that he thought Peter Jackson would return to Middle-earth. But now the Oscar-winning director has quashed all hopes of a Hobbit trilogy follow-up. Speaking at a press conference, Jackson explained that for legal reasons he would not be bringing any more of Tolkien's works to the big screen. Quote, The Tolkien estate owns the writings of Professor Tolkien. The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings were sold by Professor Tolkien in the late 60s, the film rights. 
but they are the only two works of his that have been sold. So without the cooperation of the Tolkien estate, there can't be more films. End quote. What do you think there, sir? Is this good news, bad news? Does it really matter news? Um, quite frankly, after having watched the last two Hobbit movies, and yes, I'm going to go see the third one, yes. Um, I got to say I'm kind of glad. because, and, and, here's, and here's the reason why. I'm just tired of all the special effectiness. You know, I, I'm wanting to go back to a little bit more practical effects. And also, as much as it's probably just going to get sucked into the vacuum of superhero movies and remakes, I just like the idea that perhaps maybe, just maybe, on the minusculest of chances, that something original could take the place of something else that Tolkien had written. So, and I'm not saying that they don't deserve to be made into films or anything like that, but I, I just, I just, I do like that idea that there's just one little chance that something original could come into play. So I'm actually kind of uh, okay. I'm more than okay with this news. What about you, sir? Yeah, I'm fine with that too, honestly. Uh, there's six Lord of the Rings movies, Hobbit movies, Tolkien movies. You know, I mean, you, you shouldn't ask for more considering The Hobbit was only supposed to be two movies and they expanded it to three you know, after taking some some story elements from uh, a couple other books and diaries, so I mean, on a, I mean, you're, people are lucky. Tolkien fans are lucky. You know, Peter Jackson Hobbit movie fans are lucky to have a complete a new trilogy that will slide right into the Lord of the Rings uh, films, the original Lord of the Rings films. So. I'm fine. I mean, I, plus I think it's time for Peter Jackson to move on and, you know, prove himself in in, in other avenues than Lord of the Rings. I mean, he hasn't made a... Other than Lord of the Rings, I mean, he hasn't made a good movie since, I think, King Kong. I loved King Kong, but, you know, I, I would love to see him do a smaller movie again, which would be nice. Didn't he do Lovely Bones? I didn't like that one. Stanley Tucci was good. No, but, I just that was a smaller movie. Was, that was, but it was still a, a heavy fe- a special effects movie. Oh, well, that's true. The whole heaven right. thing. Well, you know when your when your spirit animal partner is um, Stanley Tucci. Uh, no, is uh, James Cameron. I mean, it's kind of hard to get not special effects into these movies. Well, that's true. But even like. Well, I, okay, I know. Well, I know you, this is where you and I kind of differ with, with James Cameron. But I, I think J- how James Cameron handles special effects, I, I think I think James Cameron handles special effects differently than uh, Peter Jackson, and I think James Cameron handles special effects better than Peter Jackson, where to me, Peter Jackson, at least with the, the latest Hobbit movies, which I actually really liked, uh, the one that came out last year, um, Desolation of Smaug. Yeah, Smaug. Oh, Smaug. Oh, mighty Smaug. <laughs> Is that he? It kind of reminds me of of, of uh, George Lucas when you know he made the original trilogy, starting with Attack of the Clones, where everything was CGI because that was a new thing. Right. 
But with James Cameron, you know, he's really into technological advances and cinema and film and digital, you know, uh, filmmaking. But he's also a scientist, sure. which actually means quite a bit uh, with with developing new technologies and whatnot. And he's and James Cameron is also a fantastic storyteller. You and, know, and all three very much in evidence in Avatar. I mean, I got to tell you, sure, yeah, except except. That I was being completely facetious, and the fact that you did not pick up on that really upsets me. So, um, yeah, I mean, okay. Well, before we go and get into a, a big old fight, before we even get to the movies that are worth fighting about. Which your... we're probably not going to fight about any of the movies tonight. Pro- no, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. We need to have a knockdown drag him out over James Cameron one day. We can save that for a discussion or something. <laughs> Uh, uh, all right. Uh, hard well, on boner fights over James Cameron. Do what? Nothing. They, they, what? It sounded really weird after I realized what I just said. <laughs> wait, wait till wait till I publish the episode and you'll hear that really weird. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All I mean, right, I can sir, explain well, it, but I, no, no, that's okay. I'll just wait because I'll hear it when it's on the episode. There's lots of things that I don't realize that I just keep going, and then you just drop something in, and I hear it. When we listen, to, when I'm listening to the show, and I'm like, "Oh, that's that's hilarious," or "Oh my god, I wish I'd have caught that," or you know, but that's cool. So, what do you what else do you have for us, sir? <laughs> um, uh, uh, Mark Hamill. I, I opened up. I went back to my browser. Mark Hamill was there. I'm not too sure what that was about. Um, okay, so this is another article from io9.com, and I was actually just turned. Uh, to this website by a friend of mine, uh, Andy, from uh, back in Houston. And he recommended this article to me this past, uh, this past weekend. This is kind of, this is a hybrid of, 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 of an English, of English, uh, you know, of, 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 of font news, as well as science fiction film uh, news, as well as font used in, in, in movie news, you know, or however you want, or maybe design, we'll say movie design news. There you go. That's easy. I'll just go off of what this uh, website says. This is from io9.com, and the article is entitled, Most Awesome Essay About Science Fiction Type Fonts Ever. And this is what this article has to say. You know those sexy sans-serif fonts in the movie 2001? They appear in the credits, but also pretty much all the technical equipment on the spaceship as well. Well, now a font enthusiast has figured out what those fonts are and written an incredibly funny, illuminating essay about the topography of 2001. Or typography. Because typography and topography are two totally different things. But I move on. Dave Addy is a font fetishist's font... <laughs> he has a fetish for font. And you will be too after you read this amazing essay on his blog, Typeset in the Future. Those famous letters in the title of the movie, above 2001 Space Odyssey, are Gil Sands. And to make those zeros in 2001 look really dramatic, the designers actually used the letter O, or zero, in, or excuse me, O instead of zero. Turns out that a lot of the fonts in 2001 are variations of Futura, which makes sense. 
There sure are a lot of things labeled emergency in Futura on this spacecraft. On the spacecraft, Addy notes. There are also some stylistic features that get repeated, like all that Euro-style bold extended for Hal, whose screens you see, uh, which you see his screens often throughout the movie. The pa- uh, the the past. Blah, blah, blah. The best part, though, is Addy's commentary. And this is just going to be the last part I read right here. Quote, This final part of the film is visually electric, aurally stunning, and philosophically challenging. Many thousands of words have been penned over the decades to try and fathom the meaning of the monolith and the genesis and future of the space baby. However, none of this act contains typography and it is therefore of no concern to us let's skip to the end credits it's futura again with an m borrowed from gil sands and a w that i don't recognize from anywhere and all quotes and apparently you can look forward to i mean if you're into this stuff typography if you have a typography fetish or a topography fetish you might want to check out a, a different website, but apparently this guy, this blog, is gonna—he's gonna pick apart and talk about various movies. In fact, um, this is an alternate article that my buddy Andy uh, sent me. But originally, what piqued my interest in this was that he was talking about the Alien franchise uh, uh, movie uh, or the franchise of movies trilogy of movies franchise was well, a franchise i guess is that they do the kind of the same thing so it's very interesting you know especially in science fiction you know it's the attention grabbers it's to you know make you look you know that's why you see a lot of movies with uh with well, like especially if you have the credits of the people's names you know the the names are big but you know might say like directed in big bold letters and and in small, you know, not bold letters, produced in big bold letters by italicized bold small Stanley Kubrick, you know, and bigger bold letters, you know, it's just more appealing or appeasing to the eye, you know, to look at, really, really grabs your attention. That's why I also really liked, uh, like, the Adams Family, you know, the opening credits to that, or even Scrooge, you know, I, I wish I knew what that font was, but I always loved it because it was creepy to look at, and it fit... Danny Elfman scores so well that as a kid, I every movie I made, I wanted to, I want to use that font because I don't know why, but it just always it, it just I, I don't know it was so eye catching and yeah I mean who would have known that 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 fonts are a big deal with movies I mean I guess one would think so especially with like marketing fonts are you know a big uh, a draw for a consumer so it only would only make sense it would be the same thing uh, for films comments questions concerns matt anything you'd like to add on about fonts and film nope do you have a favorite font helvetica <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> comic sans no i'm just kidding um <clears throat> uh i always personally like just for the fun of uh, scrolling through fonts in, you know, Microsoft Word or what have you. Um, Gothic Copperplate has always been a favorite of mine. Mm. Exciting. Anyway. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. 
Oh, right. this is well, as exciting as an NPR. The last NPR episode, or last uh, Saturday afternoon NPR show I listened to, they talked about tea bags for like two hours. It was all about tea bags. And it was enthralling radio listening. Did they talk about the origin of tea bags? Maybe. I don't know. I kind of fell asleep. It's fun because the origin of tea bags was actually an accident. Basically, this guy was trying to uh, start start slash expand his tea business and so he had gotten all these new teas in and he's like my teas are the best and to get people to try it he literally got these small silk thin silk pouches put the tea in them and then sent them out to people as samples and said try them and when people would come in he would give them these little silk pouches and say here and that is how the tea bag came into existence because people didn't care about the tea they wanted more pouches well yeah i guess the tea is only as good as a pouch indeed the contents of the sack are only as good <laughs> as the sack itself indeed all right well last but not least from me uh, coming to us from FilmDivider.com, courtesy of Charles Madison. Um, before I read this, Tim, I know we talked a little bit about this before, but you remember how we did a discussions a couple uh, we did we had a discussions piece a couple of weeks ago about how superhero films should be taken seriously and how the guys behind Captain America. Um, Winter Soldier were thinking that you know that should be considered for best picture, right? Sure. Yeah. Now I know that there are tons of campaigns going on for uh, we're we're about to hit Oscar season and everything, and and it's going to be very exciting. And in that vein of these fantastic special effects laden, you know, you know, popcorn driven films with story and heart like Captain America, the winter soldier, like the Avengers. Can you even possibly think of a movie that good that is going to be in consideration that's been presented to the Oscar committee for best picture? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking the last good superhero movie I've seen was Captain America. But, I mean, is it Captain America Winter Soldier or Guardians of the Galaxy? I am going to lay it on you here. Here you go, folks. Are you ready for this? Unbelievably. Paramount. (laughs) Paramount. You're campaigning. For Transformers Age of Extinction in the Oscars Best Picture category. Oh. (laughs) Yes, you heard that. You heard that right. That's paramount for you. That's right. They're campaigning for Transformers Age of Extinction in the Oscars Best Picture category. Are you sure this was an MTV Movie Awards? (laughs) No, I swear to God. <laughs> you can go to Film Divider and check this out for yourself because they actually have the for your consideration uh, uh, leaflet or whatever that they actually present and turn in is they have a picture of it. Uh, yes, with what would seem to be huge mountains of hubris, Paramount are asking members of the Academy and whoever else has an award ceremony in the Oscars model to consider Transformers Age of Extinction as a contender for 2014's Best Picture. Uh, 
And again, they have an actual picture of the four-year consideration. And literally, awards 2014 for your consideration. Transformers in 3D, Age of Extinction, for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. Ah, yes. Maybe it's just policy that Paramount asks for all of their four-year consideration films to be presented across the board. And that their motivation to lobby for extinction at all was more realistic, thinking they might earn it recognition for visual effects, sound editing, sound mixing, maybe even cinematography, or best original song. Uh, there have been enough Oscars around to know that Battle Cry could be nominated for Best Original Song very easily, despite it being a touch embarrassing. If it is just policy, it's a badly judged one with silly consequences. They're not treating Hercules in the same way, for example. All they're mentioning there is Fernando Velasquez's score. Maybe there's an explanation for the different treatment. What if it's just that Brett Ratner didn't have the forethought to have an awards campaign put in his director's writer, and Michael Bay did? <sighs> I don't know. What What are you thinking there, Tim? What do you think? I got I, I got to hand it to Charles Madison. He he at least puts a plausible. He attempts to put a plausible spin as to why this would be there, and he immediately shoots it down, and rightfully so. So I am in his camp here. What, uh, not to steal from other internet people out there, but what the hell were they thinking? You, what are you surprised? Do you think this was the best American movie made, and that was released in two thousand and fourteen? Texas, and this is shit. <laughs> this movie takes place in Texas uh, at the beginning, where and, where all the pretty people live, apparently yeah, in rural yeah. West Texas. Mm-hmm. Shoot. Um, uh, that's it's bullshit, man. It's fucking bullshit. <laughs> I cannot wait to see... Every time I see a billboard of, for your consideration, Transformers, Michael Bay's Transformers, Age of Shit Hell, I'm going to take a picture of it and post it because it's, it's so ridiculous. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yes. Yeah, so that retarded bit of fodder is my last piece of news. Uh, did you want to bring us home with anything? Or uh, no, I think you brought us home with with that. <laughs> I, I'm a little brain dead from <laughs> from that. Really, uh, IQ dropped a couple points there. A, a little uh, bit. I thought he couldn't right. drop any more after actually watching the movie. But yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right. The well, idea of huh. the the idea of. Steve Martin, or or uh, or well, Rich, what what? Who's another prestigious uh, Academy Award winner uh, filmmaker? Um, hmm. Oh, let's do an easy one. Steven Spielberg. Okay, okay. Well, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and in the Academy for Best Picture, you have *Imitation Game*. You have <laughs> *Grand Budapest Hotel*. David Fincher's Gone Girl and Michael Bay's Transformers <laughs> Age of Extinction. And the Oscar goes to... Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Michael Bay. Oh, God. Uh, indeed. All right. Well, then let's go ahead and get to our Christmas-themed bonus segment this week. It's a Christmas copycat throwdown. It's... It's... it's 
the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown that's right it's the copycat throwdown well that's right it's the copycat throwdown stop it stop it no no seriously stop it oh right like stop repeating stop repeating right oh okay i'm gonna kick your ass throwdown We're going to be doing these for the next two weeks, just to kind of get us a little Christmas mood going on. Uh, We've got this week's Christmas copycat throwdown is Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. The question of Santa Claus seems to be largely a matter of opinion. Many people firmly believe in him. Others do not. I'm Santa Claus. Oh, you don't believe that. Lost souls that's up to us to help. I'll take care of Susie if you'll take care of her mother. It's a deal. But you'll get me out of this. You'll think of something. It's not going to be easy, Chris. Oh, it will be for you. I intend to prove that Mr. Kringle is Santa Claus. But I've got a feeling he is Santa Claus, Mother. I think perhaps you're right, Susie. Oh, Christmas isn't just a day. It's a frame of mind. Versus Miracle on 34th Street from 1994. He thinks you're Santa Claus. (laughs) I am. You know what? I know. Know what? A secret. What secret? Santa Claus. I've known for a long time. He's not real. Says who? My mom. I am the parent. You are the friendly guy down the hall. They say that seeing is believing. (laughs) But the truth is, the world is held together by things you can't see. There really has to be something you want for Christmas. A house, a brother, and a dad. That's all I ever want. He loves you and he wants to kiss you. And he thinks he's the most beautiful woman in the whole world. If you're really Santa Claus, you can get it for me. What? <laughs> it's an engagement ring. If you can't accept Anything, faith, then you're doomed for a life dominated by doubt. She's deaf. You don't have to talk to her. She just wanted to see you. You are a very beautiful young lady. (laughs) If I could make you believe, then there'd be some hope for me. If I can't, well, I'm finished. I want this man declared insane. This is about... A man who has had something very wrong done to him. I want you to help him. Together, we're going to prove that there is a Santa Claus and that you're him. 
I'm ready, Councilman. Do you believe that you are Santa Claus? Yes, of course. I'd like the court to see Mr. Kringle make the reindeer fly. He only flies on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Coles believes in Santa Claus. Do you believe in Santa Claus? If this court finds that Mr. Kringle is not who he says he is, then I would ask the court to judge which is worse, a lie that draws a smile or a truth that draws a tear. 20th Century Fox, Richard Attenborough, Elizabeth Perkins, Dylan McDermott, and Mrs. Doubtfire's Mara Wilson present you with the most precious gift of all, something to believe in. Miracle on 34th Street. Directed by Les Mayfield. Now, these are basically the same movie. I mean, it's, uh, it is well-known actors of the day. And they tell the same story in virtually the same format. Very few changes are made other than things that are, uh, you know, bringing it up to date in terms, you know, in terms of things that were current for 1994. Um, delightfully well cast for, uh, let's see, you had Edmund, uh, Gwen and, uh, Richard Attenborough playing the roles of Santa respectively there for these for these films and i don't i mean yeah so it's basically following the story of santa as he checks on things to see how the world is really working during the christmas season in new york city and he stumbles across the macy's thanksgiving day parade and ends up filling in as santa which of course you know is is kind of a inside joke for the viewer because he is of course is santa and trying to convince a little girl that santa really does exist okay i i am only going to defer to the 47 version simply because it is truly a classic and without it we would never have gotten the 94 version that being said, for me, all other things are equal on this one. I don't think either one is really better than the other one, but I am just deferring to the 1947 version simply because of its classic status, and without it, we would not have gotten 1994. Uh, they both play out the exact same way. Uh, they are both exceptionally charming, great secondary cast in both films, and well-known character actors and recognizable character actors in the second tier uh, in both films. And, yeah, I'm... So I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to pick 1947 as the, as the winner for me, but you will be happy with either one. My kids, they both... They love both versions, so clearly good to go. What about you, Tim? Yeah, uh, this might actually be the shortest copycat throwdown ever, because I enjoy both of them uh, uh, as well. 1947, of course, is the version of the movie, though it's nice to see, a, especially in the early 90s, a, a, a modern, uh, well, I guess a new take 
on an old story, but at the same time they're respecting the material, which could also be attested to the fact that it was also written by uh, the same gentleman, or worked on, the screenplay was worked on by the same gentleman who wrote uh, the first movie, as well as John Hughes worked on the screenplay as well. Um, the first one, I forgot how much I loved this movie. It's been years since I've seen it. Uh, I love little Natalie Wood as much as I love grown-up, sexy-ass... Well, maybe she might not have been sexy, but... I mean, well, actually, she was sexy in her own way. She was beautiful, she was cute. Even as a young girl, she was very cute, very charming young girl. However, one thing I liked more in the newer version than I did in the older version is that... I thought she was, uh, she, the little girl came across as too much of a little shit too often in the first one. Whereas Mara Wilson, you notice more of a nuanced performance from her. And I think that that, that could be uh, due to the style of filmmaking. You know, the style of filmmaking has changed, even though the 1994 movie actually looks like an old movie. I mean, you have the costumes are very... Um, there's no... They, they, nobody wears revealing clothing. It's very modest clothing. The colors in some way resemble, uh, you know, late Technicolor-esque. You know, very bland... Uh, very bland kind of colors. But it all works. You know, it's a Christmassy... It definitely has a Christmassy feel to it. And the music is gorgeous. Uh, and, and the story itself is wonderful, but it's it's the character. The young girl character is what did it for me in the new version. She plays her more of a girl who doesn't believe, and yet, you know, she like it, she, she she's grown up too fast. And yet there's a great line in the movie where she asks her mom if she if she can believe just for a little bit longer. And there's a touching scene between the two of them, and that's really the first time when you see the mom kind of change the path of, you know, change the, the outlook of letting her child believe in Santa Claus. And so it's kind of, it's a cute little moment. And uh, I, I thought the nuances came across a little bit clearer in the newer version than the older version. Yet I still do love the older version the best. Uh, and... But I mean, but then again, I really like both of them for for various reasons. But the older one is definitely the better one. Um, the older movie for its time, a great achievement. Uh, one Academy was nominated and won Academy Awards. Um, the newer version, the updates were wonderfully done. To me, this is if you were going to update a classic movie and stay true to that classic movie, I think this is a good example of the right way to do it. Because one of another really touching scene in the newer version, uh, well, actually in the older, in the 1947 version, Santa Claus is talking to, I believe it was a Dutch girl, where the mother says, oh, this is my daughter, she really wanted to come and sit on your lap, but she's Dutch. And, you know, she sits on his lap and he starts, you know, speaking Dutch to her. In the newer version, uh, again, another really touching, nuanced moment where the mother sits the daughter down and says she really wanted to see Santa Claus, but she, you know, you don't have to say anything to her because she's deaf. And just the look on Richard Attenborough's face is, is, is seriously, it's for a split second, but it is absolutely marvelous of like, oh, well, 
you know, think like it's like he's processing all this information of what all this girl is going through, yet he is so excited to give her this moment of joy when he suddenly he busts out this very simplistic, yet again touching sign language to her. And yet the joy from this little girl is absolutely astounding because I don't know how the director, how she managed to capture these moments. Or maybe uh, Richard Attenborough played the role of Santa Claus as they were filming it to uh, to these kids who had no idea who the hell Richard Attenborough was at the time. So they were genuinely surprised that Santa Claus was there. And this could have been, you know, how this little girl, this little deaf girl, was so amazed at that Santa Claus was actually signing to her and, and, and trying to communicate. And it was just wonderful, and I, and I loved it. So... To make a long rambling short, both of them are excellent in their own ways. I mean, the 1994 one is not as good, but it has a lot of really good stuff in it. 1947 is, I think, the bomb. So, 1947, The Miracle on 34th Street, all the way. Very well, very well. All right, so next week... We are going to be doing our uh, other Christmas-themed copycat throwdown, and we're going to be comparing a Christmas Carol, uh, otherwise known as Scrooge. It was known as Christmas Carol in the U.S., but Scrooge in England, from 1951, versus the Muppet Christmas Carol from 1992. And that'll be that. So that brings us to our last segment, which is, of course... We interrupt this episode to bring you yet another tale of Christmas cheer. This time from the one and only Tim from the SLS cast. Now sit back and sip some eggnog, cuddle close to your loved one, and enjoy yet another tale of holiday warmth. All right, yes, cuddle up close, sip on that eggnog, and enjoy yourself, because like Matt, uh, I whenever I think of Christmas, I think of the various memories, you know, just like the fun memories I have with my family. Christmas, the whole setup was, you know, going to my grandparents' house on my mom's side of the family for Christmas Eve. No, I don't go to church, so... Later on in the years, uh, usually the family would go out and some of the men would just stay home and talk, watch TV or whatever. And when the, you know, the, the ladies get back or sometimes uh, the church we would go to or that they went to was this big church in an area of, of town called the Woodlands. And it was the very ritzy, fancy part of town. And they have a big kind of like non-denominational Christian church there. I mean, it's, they say it's non-denominational, but you know, it's, it's a non-denomination of Christianity. Anyways, but you go to this church and every year they put on a big show and there's a themed show every year. Actually, they do themed uh, services all the time. In fact, I, I remember one year, going uh, during my uh, spurt of high school trying to find Christ because in Texas and you're in high school it's all about you know the the youth group and all that jazz it was like it was the cool thing to do going to church and yet that kind of carried over to the holidays as well since uh, a number of people on my mom's side of the family especially my mom's sister my aunts my cousins my grandparents were very religious so you know we I, uh, in 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 honor of my you know of respect for my for my family, I would tag along 
And I tell you what, this non-denominational Christian uh, service was a lot better than the Lutheran service that I used to go to with my grandparents back in the day. Uh, and I remember going to the Lutheran service, and during during the service, again, this was this was Christmas Eve. Ma- uh, well, it's Lutherans. I don't know if it's Mass, but it was the Christmas Eve service for the Lutherans. And again, it, it was like four hours long. It felt like it was super boring. But what got me is that they had a new pastor. They had a new priest or whatever the Lutherans call him, who was giving that evening's service. And he proceeded to debunk the rumor that Jesus was not born, uh, or excuse me, that Jesus was born on Christmas. But in fact... If you look at, in his reasoning, (laughs) his reasoning that Christ was not born on Christmas, his reasoning, again, it was that because of the animals uh, that were were present in the pictures, you know, he's going off the paintings, I mean, obviously there aren't photographs of Jesus being born, Uh, you know, the, the paintings of the animals and the fact that the people within the paintings did not look cold and that they were thinly dressed, that that was his reasoning, uh, not, not because of the fact of like, oh, you know, some monks, you know, some priests and preachers, clergymen wrote the book of the Bible. No, it wasn't that. It was it was based on the oil paintings, the hundreds of years old paintings that accurately depicted the birth of Christ. That is the History Channel right there. That that is the History Channel of documenting the birth of Christ. So that was that was Lutheran Church. So I mean, so going to the the church in the woodlands, the Ritzy Church, you know, I was talking about a moment ago, the the non-denominational church. You go there, and it's a stark contrast from the Lutheran Church. You have a very energetic pastor. You know, this is the pastor where he has a wife who's a part of the sermon as well, and she's so she's so happy that she's there, even though they've had like ten freaking Christmas Eve masses before the main Christmas Eve Mass, because so many people go to the show, because it's a show, not necessarily Mass, that they have to have ten showings of it. But I digress, even more. But, you know, the kids come up, and the kids have some Christmas, you know, they interject, you know, the Christmas mood and the feeling, and the, you know, the whole idea of, oh, the kids give gifts, but, you know, ultimately there's a depressing message at the end of it, followed by a collection, because uh, they do want your money. Believe it or not, they do want your money. But what really got me was you have the Lutheran Church, you know, you have whatever Catholic church uh, that a number of people go to, where it's just your run of run of the mill candlelight vigils, you know, lighting of the candle or you know whatever it's called, the Christmas Eve candle mass. Sure. To all of a sudden, you're in Times Square, you're in a church in Texas, a suburb of, of Houston, yet the stage. Is Times Square with full on with a with an ice rink, and it's a performance. is a forty five minute to an hour long performance. They even did a version of Stop. Yeah, that's right. That the, the band or the group that was big ten years ago. Yeah, they brought them there and they performed. It was a performance, and yet people took it as as a religious message. And that's one thing that I that I will always remember growing up. And to be perfectly honest, uh, the story that I originally was going to tell uh, was not about this, but I realized that I'm kind of running over with this story, or actually very close to running over with the story, so I can't really veer off to, <laughs> to what I originally was going to talk about. So I'm just going to keep on with what, I, what I've been talking about with the churches. 
but that that is actually a memory that I will always cherish. Uh, that, well, I guess it's the second memory I will always cherish, is though I was with my family, though to me what really mattered most uh, about Christmas, I mean, I'm not going to say the gifts, but it, what, it sure as hell was not the church experience, but it was with being with my family. And especially it meant more, it means more now because my grandfather, who passed away two Aprils ago, uh, he was always, he was the, the patriarch, you know, he was... The, the 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 soul the entity of the family you know he was the wise sage of the Anderson clan and he made Christmas you know he that this was the holiday he always looked forward to because the family was together uh, that's why I appreciate it more now because I think at the time maybe I didn't really you know appreciate it as much as I I you know as much as I should have. But it was the family. It's the smell of chili, my grandmother's chili, that I miss because she doesn't do it anymore. And, and, and to me, that's what Christmas was about. It was it was a mixture of aromas, of of, of taste, feeling of, of seeing people that you haven't seen since last Christmas. But they're all together under one roof, enjoying, you know, chilies and tamales. You know, that was our Christmas Eve meal, not turkey and ham. Hell no, chili and tamales. Uh, and not just any tamales. These were like food truck vendor tamales. And, you know, that, to me, that's Christmas. That is Christmas. So, that will be my holiday ramblings with Tim. The movie! <laughs> So, the movies this week are The Theory of Everything, Sabotage from 2014, not the 1936 one, and Rage, also from 2014. Uh, Where do you want to start there, Tim? How about with Rage, since that might be the most boring (laughs) one, the boringest one to talk about. All right. Well, Rage is a 2014 movie. Um, Okay. This is, Rage is, is like what John Wick would have been if John Wick had been made by uh, the B-team, okay? And think of whatever B-team you want and that, you know, the, the, the people you felt sorry for and just said, ah, green light the movie, you know, the, somebody must be dying of cancer. Oh, look, it's from the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Go ahead and let them make the movie. That's this is what John Wick would have been. Okay, uh, it's rage. We have a guy who uh, gets out of the mob based on a heist, and he's now seventeen, twenty years later, something like that. Uh, he's made a uh, fortune in like construction or some shit. I can't even remember. And the, it, but his buddies who helped him with the heist, they have not been as fortunate. And one night, uh, his daughter has some friends come over and then she ends up missing so he's going he's he's trying to let the police do their thing and of course the police harass him because they even though they couldn't prove anything they know that he's been he was in the mob and everything else um the girl ends up dead and then that's it now we have cage rage right so Nicolas Cage is all mad because he thinks somebody killed his daughter and he thinks it's all related to the mob thing that he did 
to, you know, 20 years ago, whatever. So naturally, he and his buddies all go and do their rage. Um, Peter Stormare, for once, I, I didn't like him. I was so upset because I love Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare plays his boss, uh, his old mob boss. And so I was really disappointed. Um, this was literally the first time I've seen him in anything that I can think of, and I didn't like him. And, uh, yeah, so you have that, which I thought would be going for the movie, but that doesn't even help. And then, of course, there's a twist at the end. Uh, spoiler alert. Five, four, three, two, one. One of the friends at her house accidentally shot her and killed her. Five, four, three, two... Okay, spoiler's over. So, basically the whole movie happens for no reason. Oh, isn't that great? Okay. Um... Whereas the last movie that we watched, the last Nick Cage movie that we watched, was so incredibly over-the-top bad that it was actually funny, and there were things that were humorous about it, and it carried us through, and we laughed, and, and I think I even gave it a better score just because of the sheer entertainment factor, uh, not because of any competent filmmaking, but just because it was you know so completely over-the-top and so terrible that it was entertaining in its own right. This one is not. It is not over the top uh, to make it entertaining it's not it's not it's not competently acted either but it's not patently terrible it's just a bad movie and no one does a good job peter stormare can't save it nick cage despite actually having talent somewhere along the way he his his being the better of the performances still can't do anything for it um, it's a ridiculous plot and it's not executed in a good way. Um, I don't quite hate this movie, but I really, really didn't like it, and it pushed it into the hate territory, so we've got a 1.75 from me. What do you got there, Tim? This movie... This movie is so bad that it's just so bad. Like, uh, like pretty much all of what Matt said... There was nothing, there's no redeemable qualities to it. The movie lacks any comedic moments. It tries to, but it doesn't succeed whatsoever, mainly because of either overacting or there was no chemistry. I mean, it just kind of felt like Nick Cage showed up on set without any rehearsals and just, you know, just went through the motions playing this guy. Yet, as the movie goes on, the one uh, positive thing that I can say about it, which should be a, I guess, a strong say, a strong, uh, you know, a remark to say about a movie, is that the last maybe 15 minutes of it, he does display some pretty good acting. And to me, I think this movie falters within with the writing and the directing, especially, because there is no artistic value to this movie whatsoever. Uh, either in directing nor, uh, nor, nor, nor within the writing, within the screenplay. Um, I mean, nothing is worse when you watch a very dull film that is trying to be very emotional, but it comes across as, like, pretentious with the forced overacting and the ultra-dramatic music in the background. And, you know, like, there, there's a, whenever there's a chase, you know, like, he's the running or car chase or whatever, there's, like, the, they're, like, the canned, they use the canned ultra chase music. You know, you can't see my air quotes, but, you know, the ultra chase music, where 
you know, it's just like the funky, you know, part club techno music, part synthesized keyboard music from 1984. You know, it's just this movie doesn't have a whole lot going for it. Though, I mean, and I really don't remember anything about the movie. I mean, there's nothing really redeemable about it. Yet, I know, I mean, you can tell that the that they that somebody tried to make this movie a good movie. And I was struggling trying to come up with a rating because it's like if I absolutely didn't like it, it should deserve a zero-star rating. Then again, I did find something to... Uh, that, that warranted Transformers Age of Extension to have a .25 of the star rating. So I landed around a 1 for Rage. So I gave Rage 1 out of 5 stars, though it more than likely deserves a little less than that. Okay, so clearly our favorite movie of the week... Oh, man, I guess it's all downhill from here. <laughs> all right, where do you want to go here, sir? We got Sabotage and The Theory of Everything. Sabotage. Sabotage, all right. 2014 action crime film. It's directed by David Ayer, who is a highly praised director, uh, by way of Tim. And I'm just really kind of disappointed because... We go from End of Watch, which was so amazing, to Fury, which was good. It was good. I contended that it didn't bring anything new to the genre, but that didn't stop it from being a good movie. And then we get to Sabotage, which, despite being smarter than it looks and uh, giving a reasonable facsimile, uh, facsimile, facsimile of... A, of equal parts thriller with crime, but with action movie, is still going downhill. Uh, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a guy by the name of Breacher. Uh, he's a DEA guy uh, with a big, huge team. They're going in on this big, super huge bust where somehow... Uh, $10 million in cash gets taken, but then disappears before it can all really be counted. Uh, the rest of the money goes kaput, and then because they, the team, this whole thing went down in such a uh, botched fashion, if you will, everyone's under the uh, under the under the magnifying glass because they everyone's like, oh, well, you guys clearly were pulling some shit here and tried to steal some money. So, we move on down the road, and then now everybody's moved on with their lives. They're either back in the DEA, or they left, or they're, you know, doing their own kind of thing. And now people from the team start dying, you know. Um, Breacher has to team up with a cop uh, to figure out what's going on here and see why people are dying and, and where did this money go and if anywhere or what have you. Shenanigans ensue, and of course we have the action portion of it, and then the thriller portion is the Who Done It, and it's and again, it's pretty smart, uh, but it's 
it, it seems like everything that was smart about it with the thriller aspect and the whodunit aspect was undone by the ridiculousness of the action when they would do it. And then when you finally get to the reasons behind the thriller aspect and you get to you get through to the whodunits, up until the very end of the movie, as the things start being revealed to you, it gets stupider and stupider and more predictable and more predictable. And it's like undoing all of the all of the crimes, all of the, like all of the solving that was going on is being undone when you get to the actual solution uh, to each layer of this puzzle as the thing goes through. And the action where it's trying to be more intense as it get it's just getting it's not that it's more intense and it's not that it's too over the top but it's just it's ridiculous in its own right without being justified there are some redeeming things here this is again it's very smartly done david Ayer is a good director it's just i don't know i think it's the stories that he picks and this story just didn't have enough to even to even have David Ayer's touch be good. So it's not a bad movie, but for me, it was just okay. 2.5. I'm sorry, Tim. You may now crucify me and uh, have your way, sir. <laughs> Wait, would you get it? Give it? 2.5. It was Two, just okay. 2.5. Well, okay, so this is one of those movies where if you don't know the backstory of the making of the movie, um, you'll have comments like the following. <clears throat> From the director of Training Day, End of Game, and Fury, <laughs> you have this movie. Second comment. How did the DEA know that... $10 million was missing from a, like, a, a pile of money that was lit on fire. And yet the DEA, the, DA, the, DEA, the, the officials, the DEA officials who did not see that money had no idea how much was in that pile to begin with, nor how much was taken from that pile to begin with. Next, uh, next little comment here. This movie proves that there can be too much camaraderie in a movie, especially when improvised. Yes, very much like The Expendables, there is way too much camaraderie in this movie. Like The Expendables, again, everyone has goofy names, nicknames. Of course, they are explained in this movie. For example, Pyro. His name is Pyro. He, the character of Pyro, says, My, I get that name because I burnt down a meth lab. But the guy behind him says, no, that's not because uh, his name isn't Pyro because that is because his ass burns. And that was supposed to be a comedic moment in David Ayer's Academy Award nominated film Sabotage. Yet, those are the type of comments I had directed toward this movie. And, you know, the, the, these comments stick because this is the movie that was that came out. However, this was not the movie David Ayer was wanting to make or that he originally made the original cut of the film was nearly three hours long and it was cut down to one hour and 50 some odd minutes by the studio because they felt that the film needed to be more actiony 
other than what David Ayer wanted the film to be, which was he wanted it to be more of like a mystery thriller, not an action movie, not, you know, solely an action movie. But the problem with the studio cutting down this movie to be an action movie is because it is not an action movie. This movie doesn't have enough action in it to warrant the title or the genre of an action movie. This movie doesn't have well-thought-out action scenes to warrant the genre of it being a, you know, of an action movie. And I've noticed a lot, there are a lot of movies like this where you can tell that there is tension between this movie studio and the director because when the movie was made, it was planned out differently than how it was cut. I mean, look at, uh, for example, the last Die Hard movie. I hated that movie because I felt the movie wasn't, you know, the movie wasn't made how it was presented. And it's the same thing with, um, I, I, I don't, I think the, I don't, am I thinking the Expendables? Or there's another big action, there's, there are many other movies, not just action movies, that are cut by the studio. But it, it was against the original vision of the filmmaker while making it. I mean, same thing with comedies. Comedies are cut, uh, you know, animated movies especially are cut by studios, uh, and, you know, look what happened, like Freebirds or, you know, all the other animated movies that are not Disney Pixar. You know, they're cut by other people sometimes and not the director. That's why they, uh, they're they they're not good. Um, let's see. Um, but yeah, you know, you can't make an action movie that wasn't intended out of a movie that wasn't intended to be an action movie. So when it comes down to it, it is obvious when watching this movie that David Ayer had something else in mind. He shot his vision, but then it was reworked, causing this film to miss most of its marks. See, you don't fuck with the director's vision, especially when the director is David Ayer, and he, you know, end of watch, training day, Fury. I mean, they, this movie came out before Th uh, Fury, obviously, but... Still, I mean, this movie, this guy made made End of Watch. Believe in this guy. I mean, this guy has a background in the field of, uh, you know, within within within. I don't know if law enforcement or you know, he's very he's he's into the technical aspect of 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 these missions of these law enforcement missions, and so he meticulously plans out the shots and plans out the action, plans out the movement. So that it is as true to reality as as possible. That's why End of Watch, with all those long takes, you know, the movie is just fascinating because it feels like you're watching a real raid, or a real drug bust, or a real you know cartel bust, or whatever. But this movie doesn't have any of that because it was trimmed down, and I feel that if the movie was nearly three hours, I I don't think it would necessarily be a great movie because the acting wouldn't really change. But I think things would be in a different context. I think the humor would be in a different context. I think, you know, the the mystery, the suspense, all the everything, the story elements would be in such a different context that characters would have a time to grow. You, as the audience member, will have a chance to develop a relationship with a character to where if something happens to them, when your favorite character dies... There's a feeling there. But you don't have that feeling. So this movie falls into tropes. Falls into so many tropes. It's very cliched. Terrence Howard is in this movie. Spoiler alert. 
Still a spoiler. I'm giving you time. Because, spoiler, more spoiler, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. When you have a name, a big-ish name like Terrence Howard, and he's only, he has maybe three lines, he says, in the whole movie, and he's not really in the movie that much, you can pretty much guess he's going to be the bad guy who's often all the people at the end of the movie. Because why else would he be in the movie? If the movie was two hours and 40 minutes, or two hours and 45 minutes, there could have been more there, and apparently there was more there. But yet, the movie might not have been as great, but it, you know, I think it would have benefited from a longer running time. I don't know. We can only hope... I mean, if, if they do release a director's cut, an extended cut of the movie, I would love to watch it. If you get the Blu-ray of the movie, they have two different alternate endings, which I think the alternate endings sound pretty cool. Definitely more thought out than what you have with uh, the current movie. But you also have loads of deleted scenes to where if you watch all those deleted scenes, you get a feel of what you missed out on. Now, again, I'm, I've, I've read this in various articles and in various reviews. I haven't seen them myself, but uh, various writers that I, you know, that I follow on a regular basis or critics I follow on a regular basis, um, they say that, you know, they're worth checking out because you get to, you get a look at what the movie could have been. So, Sabotage is a two-star movie for me. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Then that leaves us with The Theory of Everything, which is the biopic... <clears throat> I get, it, 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 it's, it's supposed to be, a, I guess, this generation's version of A Beautiful Mind. Uh, part romance, part, part drama... All, you know, basically biographical. And this covers the period of time when Stephen Hawking was young and vibrant and as he fell in love with his first wife and then, of course, came down with uh, the um, motor neuron disease and, of course, its progression and how he overcame. Um... I mean, there's honestly, there's really nothing to add to a movie like this, um, other than it's really good. Uh, it, it's really, really good, and I just kind of wish it, it, you watched this movie, and then you just kind of feel so bad by the time everything ends. And even though they have a working relationship today, you watch that movie and it's kind of like all of that was almost for naught when you think about it, because they don't they don't stay together. I mean, what what the hell kind of romantic film is this when you already know going into it just how devastating it's gonna be? <laughs> Um, but it's still, still, for me, the, despite the flaws in the story for me, be, because of its real-life tendencies, and again, real life isn't like the movies, is it? Real life doesn't always turn out. You can't solve a problem, you know, in 23 and a half minutes with four commercials. It doesn't happen that way. I get, you know, sure. But you both simultaneously appreciate the movie for... How, for its outcome ultimately and of course what you know in real life and at the same time 
you know, by God, can't we just get a truly happy ending instead of knowing the full outcome? I don't know. So it's brilliantly acted. It's got a, a really interesting score, which uh, hopefully you'll pick up on. It's, you know, good for the ears there. Um, David uh, Thulis there, again, amazing. I love, there's hardly anything he's done that I don't care for. Um, Eddie Redmayne has been a fantastic, fantastic actor. I've always uh, admired him and his work ever since I saw him in, good lord, was it Pillars of the Earth? I believe it was. I believe it was either Pillars of the Earth or World Without End. I can't remember which miniseries he was in. They're based on Ken Follett books. Um, they're both fantastic. I just can't remember which which one he was in. So I saw him from there. And then, of course, the uh, Black Death movie that Tim had me watch many years ago. He was in that. and um, But, yeah. So, again, great acting and good performances. But, yeah. Uh, this one is going to be... I had written three and a half stars down, but I, I don't even, barring everything else, that's that's not really fair. Four stars. Four stars. The movie's going to be four stars for me. Uh, so bring us home, Tim. What do you got? This is a four-star movie for me as well. Um, it could be more. Uh, I think this is definitely a movie that you watch it once, not really knowing uh, what to expect. And once you realize that this movie is... It's handled beautifully. I mean, it's a well-crafted film. It's part biopic, part love story. And just how it's directed, I mean, you think you would never really see a movie a movie like this that, that is very, uh, uh, you know, it's it has, a, it has a nice effect on you while you watch it because, like what Matt said, you know what's going to happen. And it's awfully depressing, but then you just see the relationship he has with the with the girl he falls in love with, and uh, yeah, I just I really don't know how to express how much I really you know appreciate this movie, uh, the 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 storytelling of this movie. It's definitely one of the one of the best biopics I've seen, uh, newer biopics I've seen in a very long time. Unless Matt, you can correct me i mean I, I don't remember watching a really good biopic like this for I, I don't know it's it's been a couple years i mean i honestly cannot think of the you, last you were one, big be... on you were big on 41 no uh i wasn't big on 41 i enjoyed 41 but it wasn't great no. i was i mean that was still to me that was still like a run-of-a-mill biopic where this one it has the love story in it. It has the it's the biopic movie, but it it feels a little. It's more. I don't know. It felt a little more fresh than everything else. You know, it's not. They're not making this guy out to seem you know like 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 he is God. You know, this is a movie about a a, a, a man with a with a beautiful mind. You know, a smart, uh, fantastic human being, and yet. He was he was kind of stuck with this horrible illness that you know later he ended up you know learning to live with, but yet he was able to still use that mind of his for good. And even now, you know, he just recently came out with a new book, and he's still making comments about 
pop culture and you know even whenever they were making this movie he didn't want uh, uh he didn't want Redmayne to play him in the movie because he said that he was too geeky <laughs> to play a young Stephen Hawking which I think is absolutely hilarious until Stephen Hawking actually saw the movie and apparently or yeah apparently it brought him to tears because he thought it was a really good he portrayed him uh, uh really well and you know, I guess that, you know, you can't ask for anything else if, you know, the guy that you're portraying, you know, gives, you know, g- gives you his blessing that, you know, you you did it great. Um, again, wonderfully acted and produced. The um, the emotional affection, you know, the emotional and or the emotion and the affection within the movie is handled well. This is just a well-crafted movie. Uh, if I keep talking, I'm just going to keep going around and around and around in circles. It's a beautiful film. I highly recommend it. Uh, right now, I'm going to give it four. It could be more. I don't know. But uh, it's it's really good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. On, right on. Okay, well, that concludes all the movies for the week. Tim! Because I wasn't smart and I didn't write them down. Tell us what movies we're watching next week. Or for next week. Well, the movies we will be watching next week are all Netflix movies. In fact, they are all Oscar contenders in some way. One of them is Ida, which technically was released, I believe, in 2013. It is a foreign film, and that is uh, that that is in the run for uh, for best uh, foreign language film. Though the nominations aren't out yet, uh, but a lot of people are saying it's a great film. The second one is the 2014 drama romance, the one I love, starring uh, Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men fame. And the third is a film entitled entitled Blue Ruin, which, when it hit the festival circuit, a lot of people, I mean, it garnered a lot of buzz. A lot of people really liked it, so I'm, I'm really excited about watching that one as well. So the three movies for next week are Ida, the One I Love, and Blue Ruin, all Netflix. Cool beans. All right, well, then I guess that brings us down to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, as always, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, well, of course, we are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com you can even send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can follow us on twitter at the slscast you can even follow me uh, on twitter this is matt of course at nittwit12345 and Tim's got some kind of SLS cast Twitter thing, but he still doesn't say what it is and of course you can always uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and favorite us on Stitcher Radio So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Stephen Hawking, I get to say this. A few years ago, the city council of Monza, Italy, barred pet owners from keeping goldfish in curved bowls, saying that it is cruel to keep a fish in a bowl with curved sides, because gazing out, the fish would have a distorted view of reality. But how do we know we have the true undistorted picture of reality? Take care, guys, and we'll talk to you next week. 
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.